0: Let's take our Bible, and I invite you to join me in the book of Genesis, chapter number 46. I do apologize for uh, having to stand behind a table here, but I'm glad that they can't take my Bible away, amen? Even if they did, it'd still come out of my heart, hopefully, because I've put enough in there, and I'd be able to share something with you tonight. Uh, In the midst of all the complications of getting here, I've just uh, kept my eyes on the Lord. You know, this is pretty indicative to me that God's going to do something in our meeting here tonight and in our time in His Word. Uh, because I've just run into thing after thing, you know, one of those one of those days where it just seems like uh, everything's working to try to keep this moment from happening. But you know what? Here it is. I have my Bible open, and you're joining me in Genesis 46, and we're going to spend some time in the Scriptures. I want to draw your attention here to verses. The first few verses, we'll read down through verse number 7, and I encourage you to read through the whole chapter. I will not go through the exercise of uh, pronunciation with you through this uh, Oratorically here tonight, I'm going to let you read all those Bible names. But every one of them is important, and uh, don't just breeze over the genealogies. You need to have those dots connected, and it also tells us that our God is a very personal God. That He is interested in not just the human race in general, but He is interested in every one of us by name, and we're all we're all important to God. Every hair of our head. So most importantly, is is your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life? in the genealogical role of heaven. Amen? So Genesis 46, verse number 1. Notice the Scriptures open with these words. And Israel took his journey with all that he had, and came to Beersheba, and offered sacrifices unto the God of his father Isaac. And God spake unto Israel in the visions of the night, and said, Jacob, Jacob, and he said, Here am I. And he said, I am God, the God of thy father. Fear not to go down unto Egypt, for I will there make of thee a great nation. I will go down with thee into Egypt, and I will also surely bring thee up again, and Joseph shall put his hand upon thine eyes. And Jacob, rose up from Beersheba. And the sons of Israel carried Jacob their father and their little ones and their wives in the wagons which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. And they took their cattle and their goods which they had gotten in the land of Canaan and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his seed with him, and his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, and all his seed brought he with him into Egypt." Lord, I pray that you would bless our time in your word. May it be profitable. and Give me clarity of thought as I expound forth the scriptures. May we learn at the feet of Christ tonight, and may, before it's all said and done, may we see him and his great purposes and calling in our life. And Lord, may we be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Conform us into the image of Christ, and I'll thank you for what you do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. One writer said this, Do you know why Satan is so angry all the time? Why is the devil so mad? we sing that in Sunday school, right? (laughs) Make the devil mad. He says, Because whenever he works a particularly clever bit of mischief, God uses it to serve his own righteous purposes. I think that would make me pretty upset too if I was the devil. What about you? So God uses wicked people as his tools came the question. God gives us the freedom to do great evil. We certainly have that power (coughs) if we choose. Then He uses His own freedom to create goodness out of that evil. For that is what He chooses. I immediately thought of Brother Gilmore's comments quoting Romans 8.28. So in the long run, The question comes back then, God always wins? Yes. But in the short run, it can be uncomfortable. But God does always win. As we look at the life of Jacob here, we're in another uh, segment. This is uh, what, I think it was uh, Dr. Walford, he called this the most important chapter, Genesis 46, the most important chapter in, in the history of Israel. And as we look at what's here, I think you might come to agree with him that this is uh, momentous what we see happening here and that Jacob is is getting ready to leave Canaan land. He's getting ready to head down to Egypt because Joseph has bidden him to bring all the family down to be nourished during this grievous famine that has hit the land. So many things I pondered and meditated over this chapter. I've got to be frank with you as well. This was not an easy one to just outline and preach. You know, sometimes you come to passages in the Bible and they kind of preach themselves. Well, this one is a wonderful story, but uh, I've connected Genesis 46 and 47 together with tonight's message because I think there's an uh, an overall... application that we can draw from having those two chapters together. So while we're looking at chapter 46, I want you to keep in purview all the way up to chapter 47. My intent, if the Lord allows this, is to deal with chapter 48 and chapter 49 together because I see a united theme in those chapters. So 46 and 47 We could really uh, summarize it this way in just kind of an outline that God moves Israel down to Egypt in the first part of it that we read here in these verses. So Jacob leaves Hebron and he makes a pit stop in in, uh, Beersheba and he finds God's comforting words that come to him there that he is headed in the right direction. And so he leaves Beersheba by faith and moves his whole family and everything he has down to Egypt, where we see, in essence, the birth of God's nation, the birth of Israel. Uh, This is where he will fulfill the promises that he gave to Abraham to make them a mighty nation, the numbers as the sand of the sea and the stars of the sky. And so this would be part of his providential fulfillment towards that. Then as we see the chapter unfold, God begins to settle Israel somewhat in the land of Goshen there in Egypt, uh, which would be in the land of Ramses. It would be in that fertile plain area where they can raise their cattle. And so we see the reunion between a father and a son. That's a beautiful emotional moment to consider. And we'll make some application of that. And then we watch how God uh, gives provision in Goshen to take care of Israel, even through the midst of the famine, when the rest of Israel is selling everything they have to Joseph, to be able to buy food to eat to live, uh, Israel's thriving because they're being fed by the hand of Joseph and they're not having to sell themselves to do it. And so then chapter 47 leads us into this uh, this story of how Joseph is governing during this famine. And everyone's coming to him and he sells grain and then he buys all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh and uh, really brings Pharaoh into position of owning everything in Egypt, not just being the the governor of it all, but owning it all. And he buys up all that land for Pharaoh. And the chapter 47 concludes with Jacob's words to Joseph to make a promise that he would not bury Jacob in Egypt. So that gives us a purview, a bird's eye view, if you will, of what we're encountering in these chapters. Notice with me first off tonight, if you would, that there's a right time to go to Egypt There is a right time to go to Egypt. Why do I say that? Because as we look here in the life of Jacob, it really can be divided into three geographical locations. The life that he spent in Haran. The land of Canaan. The land of Egypt. Haran, his time there. His time in Canaan. His time in Egypt. That's why I say this is a a transitionary uh, place in the story of Jacob and Joseph because Jacob now is moving everything down to Egypt, and the whole narrative uh, takes place down there. So these aren't just geographical areas. Uh, thank you, Dr. McGee. I believe that's uh, that's who said this. Yeah, uh, Jayburn McGee said. But they denote three spiritual levels. Jacob left the land with just a staff, and he came when he came to Haran. He was God's man living in the flesh. He came out of Moran running, running from Laban, running into Esau. Remember that account? He was running away from his father-in-law. He was afraid to meet his own brother Esau. And then in the land of Canaan, Jacob had his wrestling match. But he's God's man who's fighting in his own strength. Now he moves down to Egypt and he's not walking in his own strength. He's not running anymore. He's now... Walking by faith. And I thought that was tremendous insight. As I walked the land where our Savior walked, and and I stood in these places and and opened my Bible and considered story upon story that happened in the very geographical location I stood, we came to Beersheba. And I spent some time uh, looking at a well, perhaps that would give me an idea of what a well would have looked like in the days of the patriarchs. And thinking about Abraham spending time at Beersheba, the southernmost part of Israel. You know, uh, this is known from Dan to Beersheba. That would encompass the north and the south of Israel. Now, in Solomon's reign, it went all the way down to the Red Sea. It went down to a lot. We understand that. But generally speaking, from Dan to Beersheba was the borders of Israel. So understand this. Jacob was in Hebron. And that was where he grew up. That was his home. That's where he left to go to Haran. And then he comes back and he winds up eventually back in Hebron. When it's time to head down to Egypt, he gets right to the borders of the promised land. And he says, hold on a minute. Before I take a single step further, it's time to get alone with God. I'm not going to cross these borders without knowing for sure that it's the right time to go down to Egypt. There's a right time. Why would Jacob have this question perhaps in the back of his mind? Well, I think about a time back in Genesis chapter 12 where another man, his grandfather, went down to Egypt and it was the wrong time for that man to go down to Egypt. And we see the trouble that came from that and that while he was there, uh, he was simply trying to take care of everything that he had and another famine was happening in that day that drove Abraham down into Egypt and while he was there, he picked up an Egyptian handmaid whose name was Hagar. And as they... Uh, They left and came back. We know what happened between Hagar and Sarah. And Ishmael was born to Hagar uh, through a surrogacy that they were trying to work out to try to help God along, right? And His promises that He had made to them. Well, that didn't work out so well. And Ishmael and Hagar were expelled from Abraham's household and all the heartache that came from that because Ishmael was not the child of promise. The child of promise would come through Isaac. And Isaac would be a miracle birth. And Sarah in her old age, and Abraham being a hundred years old would conceive and they would bring forth Isaac, a century old, in, in diapers, dealing with diapers at a hundred. I don't know if I could handle that. I'm forty and, and we're dealing with diapers and sometimes it's a little, a little much, you know. But uh, God's good, amen? And so as we think about where Abraham was and the trouble that came to him down in Egypt, That was a wrong time to go to Egypt. He followed his wallet, as Brother Schwanke preaches in a good message that he has. He followed his wallet, and it brought woe. The second illustration that I would use to back this up, this idea that there's a right time to go down to Egypt and a wrong time, would be Isaac, Abraham's son. And in fact, in Genesis chapter... 26, I believe it is. I don't remember the verse right off the top of my head. There's a verse where Isaac is getting ready to go down to Egypt and the Lord actually stopped him from going and commanded Isaac to not go down to Egypt. It was not time at that moment for God to fulfill His promises. There's a right time to go down to Egypt. Notice as Jacob here uh, stops in Beersheba, he's on the southernmost border of the promised land. The only portion of land that they technically own right now will be the burial plot that we read about in Genesis 47, where Jacob is going to make Joseph promise that he'll be buried there with Abraham. That's the only part of the promised land that they technically own. Isn't that amazing? And yet God promised Abraham, as far as he could see, from river to river, from the Nile to the Euphrates, That whole tract of land that even Joshua and the expanding kingdom kingdom of Solomon didn't reach unto. One day there's coming a kingdom. A coming kingdom. Amen? And that kingdom uh, will be ruled and reigned by our Lord Jesus Christ. As Jacob gets ready to head down to Egypt, he makes sure as he stops on the borders of the promised land, he wants to hear from God. And he comes to Beersheba. Beersheba is a special place. It's a special place for Jacob Abraham dug a well there. Genesis 21, verse number 30 tells us that. Abraham lived there after he offered Isaac on Mount Moriah. You read that in Genesis 22, verse number 19. Isaac lived in Beersheba. In chapter 26, verse 23, and then 32 and 33, we see Isaac living in Beersheba. And it was from from the home in Beersheba that Jacob left for Laban's house to find a wife. At Beersheba, God had appeared to Hagar, chapter 21, verse 17, and to Isaac, chapter 26, verse 23 and 24. And now, at Beersheba, he would appear to Jacob. Beersheba is a place where Jacob's going to encounter God. And notice, first off, that Jacob is the one drawing nigh to God. He makes the initial step toward God. And I see this in the fact that he worshipped. He offered sacrifices unto God. And so in Beersheba, I, I see here, as Jacob is, is consulting the Lord, he's spending time in worship, and what God gives him are words of peace and direction. And I think we can expect that too. God promised us in the New Testament through the Apostle James. He said, draw nigh to God, and God will draw nigh to you. And if we want to hear from God, the first place to do that is in our worship. And we make that first move to God. And we worship Him and we offer to Him and we say, Lord, we're coming to you. All the while, expecting by faith to hear from Him. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith. Nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. Remember, we talked about this part being in Jacob's life as he's walking by faith by the time he comes to Egypt. Now that's backwards to us, isn't it? We're thinking about going down to Egypt, going out into the world. He's going to walk by faith in Egypt? Yes, he's going to walk by faith in Egypt. And hopefully it'll make a little more sense to us tonight. Jacob's desire to see Joseph is what moved him from Hebron. He heard word. And I can't even imagine what those words did to his heart when it was confirmed that Joseph was alive. Joseph, back from the dead, Joseph, the one he had, he had thought surely had been killed by wild animals when he had sent him all those years ago, decades ago. Joseph. And his heart yearned to see Joseph. And so he says, we're heading down. That was the initial move. It was a desire of his own heart. Do you see that? And so as he began to move from Hebron, his heart grabbed him and said, hold on a minute. Let's double check this with God. And so he stops at Beersheba and he says, this is what I'm feeling I need to do. This is what it feels. This is what feels right? I really desire to see Joseph. I yearn to see Joseph, just let my eyes behold him one more time before I die. That's what I want more than anything, but I'm going to make sure it's what God wants first. And he stops in Beersheba to make sure it's the right time to go down to Egypt. In verses one through four we see Jacob worshiping God at Beersheba. And as he drew nigh to God, God drew nigh to him. And with a revelation of peace and a renewal of promise, this is a renewal of the covenant promises given to Abraham. God says, I'll surely be with you. He provides comfort to Jacob. He gives him guidance and a promise that not only Is it okay for Jacob to go? And it's the right thing for Jacob to go. But notice what he says here in verse number 4. Maybe you want to underline this phrase or put a star by it somewhere in your Bible. The Lord God, Elohim, tells Jacob in verse 4, I will go down with thee into Egypt. Lo, I'm with you always. Even unto the end of the world, Jesus told his disciples as he was getting ready to send them out with the great commission. And here Jacob gets confirmation that God's will at this juncture in his life is for him to go, to leave the land of promise, go down into Egypt, and the whole while God is going to be with him. Remember Noah was invited to come into the ark because God was already in there and God shut the door behind him. And so this is our Lord's presence in a very powerful way. And what surety, what confirmation, what courage would this lend to Jacob as he endeavors to fulfill God's will for his life at this juncture, even in his old age. He's fulfilling the will of God. But he says, hold on. I know what my heart says. My heart wants to see Joseph. But I'm going to check it with God. And I'm going to make sure what my desires are are the desires that God would have as well. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, lean not to thine own understanding, and all thy ways acknowledge Him, and He shall direct thy paths. And if you'll commit your way unto the Lord, if you'll roll your way unto Him, and cast your burden on the Lord, trust in Him, He shall also bring it to pass. And the Bible says in Psalm 37 that He'll give us the desires of our heart, right? And so this burning desire that Jacob has has now led him to a place of worship before God and God has showed up with a revelation of his word confirming his will and also giving the promise of his presence what a beautiful what a beautiful thing we see I also look at this and I see some similarities because something grabbed my attention when I read uh, verse number two and God that's Elohim spake unto Israel in the visions of the night and said what are the next two words Jacob Jacob, Jacob, and immediately I thought of other places in the Bible, I thought of another place where God one time said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here am I. I thought of another uh, young boy that was in the the priesthood, getting groomed for the priesthood, and God lifted up his voice and said, Samuel. Samuel, Samuel. And uh, Eli thought Samuel, you know, just had too much pizza the night before and something like that, you know, two or three times. And It finally clicked with Eli. Hey, this is the Lord. So he, he counseled Samuel. The next time you hear that, say, Speak, Lord, thy servant heareth. And a similar occurrence. And there's a theme that runs through these. When you have this double vocative, this double uh, calling of the name, Moses, Moses, that was from the burning bush, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? The Damascus Road. So what this shows me is that this is clearly a time when God is giving a clear call to Jacob concerning a direction for his will. Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It's hard for thee to kick against the priest. Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And that man went on after he was converted on the road to Damascus to turn the world upside down for Jesus Christ. Jacob is on the threshold here of heading down into the world, into Egypt, to turn the whole world upside down as God reveals His glory to bring them out by a mighty hand. The whole reason God's leading them down is so He can bring them out through the Red Sea. The whole reason Christ left heaven to come was to die on Calvary so that He could bring us out through His shed blood parting the way for us to find life. See, this is how God gets glory on Himself. There may be times, like Jacob experienced, where we might be tempted to follow our own desires, the yearning that we have in our heart. But let us, like Jacob here, be absolutely careful to make sure that our desires are God's desires before we make any, any final moves. And just have that peace and that confirmation that wherever we're going, God's going to be with us. Now, speak from experience in that because I haven't heard the audible voice. He didn't say Jason, Jason, or whatever other name for me you'd like to pick. I didn't hear that from heaven. No, He's revealed everything uh, He would say to me audibly right here between Genesis and Revelation. But I knew in my heart. I knew in my heart through a still small voice, through the moving of the Holy Spirit. That God had called me to preach the gospel to the inhabitants of Broomfield and I put my hand to the plow and I've never looked back and I don't regret it for one moment. He has multiplied and done more than I could ever dream even in these nine years. And I know that even beyond me, I'm praying for fruit that would remain that would carry on to generation after generation just from a simple night where I bowed and said, Lord I'm getting alone with you and I'm going to go only if you're going to go with me. And so as he arises now, Jacob is walking by faith and not by sight. But how long did it take Jacob to get here? That's a grievous thing to think about. How many decades of his life he spent, in essence, running, running from God, trying to walk in his own strength, until finally in that wrestling match with God, that night, God touched him and gave him an infirmity, gave him a weakness, and smote him, and now Jacob will be leaning upon the Lord and leaning upon others all the rest of his days. That's what it took to get Jacob under God's will and to stop trying to circumvent things with his own deception and with his own means and, and to manipulate circumstances the way that he thought they needed to turn out, but to simply trust God and say, Lord, is this the right time? Is this the right way? You told my daddy not to go to Egypt. I remember what happened to my granddaddy when he went to Egypt. Lord, I've got to know, is this the right time to go down to Egypt? Jacob's walking by by faith and not by sight. If you look at verse number 5, Jacob rose up. As soon as he had confirmation from God, he didn't let any dust settle. He said, it's time to go. I have what I need from the Lord. Pack everything up. Let's get down to Egypt. He rose up and simply obeyed God. Once he had confirmation... He's going to go where God's calling him to go. So by faith, upon the renewed promise of the covenant promises of his faith in God, the God of his father Abraham and Isaac, Jacob packs up and he follows God to Egypt with everything he has. We too, though having precious promises of a blessed hope, we're on our way to a promised place. We're on our way... To a land flowing uh, with, with all the promises of God. A city whose builder and maker is God. We're called to sojourn in a world. As God's church. And we're here on purpose by God. Even though we're looking for that city. We've been given the great commission of our Savior. To go ye therefore into all the world. And preach the gospel to every creature baptizing them, teaching them, and baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever he commanded. And he promised, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. And so let us with diligence pursue the peace of God for the specifics of where on his green earth he would have us to minister and serve, to pass our time of sojourning, if you will, whether it's in the comfort zone of our own Jerusalem or whether it would be outside of our country comfort zone in another country altogether. Only God knows those kind of details and it's His providence that will lead us to those places. But may we be careful, however, to guard our hearts. To guard against going somewhere simply because our heart says there's such a burden. A burden will take you only where a call can keep you. And if you're not called, you'll be there for whatever period of time and it won't be long before you're ready to pack up and go because the call never came, you just went because your heart tugged and you didn't stop and check it with God first to make sure that's where you needed to be. I've I've heard the stories as you have of people that don't last because there was a tremendous burden. They did a lot while they were there, but they kind of fizzled out and then they move on and What did they do there? It didn't really amount to much, usually after they're gone. And so there's surely a wrong way to go down to Egypt. There surely is a wrong time to go down to Egypt, and there would be times in our life where God would even stop us and say, do not go down to Egypt. But here, we see through Jacob, nevertheless, that we can confirm the right time. We can confirm the right way to go down to Egypt. So let's consider, secondly, On maintaining a right relationship to the world. As Jacob heads down to Egypt. Notice he doesn't go in and and, uh, bunker down next to the palace of Pharaoh. This stood out to me as I considered where God placed them in the land of Egypt. I see here again a father's love and a son's honor. In chapter 46, picking up in verse number 28, uh, yeah, that's all through the genealogies and all the names that are listed there. What you're looking at is a record of the heads of the household. And um, don't let anybody throw you off by saying there's, you know, contradictions or anything here because I can I can give you good, good, uh, good precedence if you want to make an appointment with me later so that we don't have to do it during this message time. I can show you how the Scriptures are, in fact, infallible. And there's good reason why there would be different numbers in different places. What I mean by that is when you read Stephen's sermon, particularly in Acts chapter number 7, where he's talking about Jacob coming out of Egypt, he mentions 75 souls that came out, and the passage in Genesis only records 70. So is there a contradiction in your Bible? Absolutely not. The only lack of understanding is with me. And so I educate myself up to that and I search the scriptures and I find, oh, there's a logical explanation as to why Stephen would say 75 when Genesis 46 says 70. So there's not a contradiction. Uh, It's simply just a a difference of reckoning with the numbers. And so uh, usually it's those number counting passages where most people would say there's contradictions when there's really not anyway. And so again, I don't want to take... Uh, the details to do that, I can bore you if you want some good things to read to put you to sleep at night. I've got lots of stuff that will help you understand the discrepancy and how to understand it uh, clearly and come away with a position of faith like I have in the scriptures that it's infallible, inerrant, incapable of error, and what you're reading is uh, is completely reliable as the Word of God. So, a father's love and a son's honor. Jacob, okay, they're reunited. I'm picking up here in uh, verse... Number 28. And he sent Judah before him unto Joseph. So remember, Judah now has begun to shine. He has come to the limelight after he laid his neck on the line for Benjamin and gave that plea, uh, plea to Joseph that made him look like Jesus and showed us a picture of the sacrifice that would come from his his progeny because the Messiah would come through Judah, right? The line of the tribe of Judah. Judah now takes a position of leadership. This is building us up to chapter 49 when Je- Jacob's going to give a prophecy about Judah until Shiloh comes, The scepter shall not depart from Judah. Judah now is taking on responsibility and he has also regained father's trust. All those decades of untrustworthiness, now we see some reparations happening in the family. This gives me great hope, friend. I don't know what your family's been through. But I do know God's big enough to fix it. And here we see a father being able to trust his son again after decades of not being able to trust him. And now he's leaning on Judah and says, I'm going to count on him. And he sends Judah to Joseph to go pave the way so that they can tell him he's coming. And uh, he he sent Judah before him unto Joseph to direct his face unto Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. And Joseph made ready his chariot, And went up to meet Israel, his father, to Goshen, and presented himself unto him. And he fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. And Israel said unto Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen thy face, because thou art yet alive. I see a father's love, a father's undying love, and I see a son's wonderful honor to his father. And so, Jacob, on side of Joseph, he's overcome with emotion. As I thought about this encounter, you know, I I just thought of a day that the New Testament talks about. Right now, we see through a glass darkly, but then, face to face. One day, we're going to meet our Joseph. And we're going to be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Every man that hath this hope in him, purifieth himself, even as he is pure. One day, faith will become sight and we will behold the one who died for us, the one who rose again for us, and the one who invited us to come through His shed blood for salvation by faith and we'll see our Savior. And I think, you know, we can think about it here, but its I think it's going to be an overwhelming moment when we finally get to see Jesus. I shall know Him. I shall know Him. Redeemed by his sight, I shall stand. I shall know him, I shall know him. The old blind hymn writer wrote, and I see the print of the nails in his hand. And so think too how overcome with joy we're going to be when we shall see him, our Joseph, as he is. Upon their reunion, Joseph didn't hesitate to bring Jacob to present him to his king. I thought about this too, and I thought, you know, how wonderful it's going to be when Jesus has the privilege of bringing us to his father. And here we have an earthly king getting blessed by the patriarch Jacob. Go figure that one out. Jacob's the one that winds up blessing Pharaoh. And and Pharaoh better too. You know, after you've lived long enough, there's been some people that I've just uh, lovingly told them, hey, you know, at your age, you can do whatever you want and get away with it. It's totally fine absolutely <laughs> no. Yeah, I'm joking okay that's a joke you'll th- think it through you'll get it in a minute but when people have lived a long life they're worthy of honor just for the sake of having lived as long as they have and made it that long by God's grace and so we render respect unto them we ought to hey young people listen up this is a generational thing that needs to be addressed amen and I'm not saying this because I'm on the downward hill of the slide now either. I'm, you know, I still feel 20, so I can, I can relate with you on that. But this was ingrained in me. You respect your elders. And I grew up with that being ingrained in me. And maybe you would chalk it up to Southern Hospitality. I don't really care because it's right. Amen? It's the right thing to do to respect your elders and to honor them. And so when we do that, God takes note. And here's a Pharaoh, probably a younger man in his rulership at this time. And here's Joseph, uh, one of the younger sons of Jacob. And Jacob is 120 years, 130 years by now. If we read the passage, it'll tell us exactly how old he is. I think it was 130 by now he's lived. And so Pharaoh comes, and Jacob's the one who gives the blessing to Pharaoh, the ruler of the world. (laughs) That's, That's humbling to me to think about and Joseph didn't bat an eye about bringing his father, whom he hadn't seen in decades, now proud of him to bring him and the rest of his family these sheep herders from the back side of uh, of the Bedouin area of, of Israel. I mean, these are people who, you know, they live in the dust out there. And he's going to bring him into the courts of Pharaoh, the most pomp king of the day, with all of the splendor and all of the gold. And so here comes Jacob with his with his sheepskins and, and with, his, with his shepherd clothing on and his staff in his hand to a, a throne of gold all arrayed in beauty and splendor and precious gems and, and people with palm thrones waving them and feeding them grapes. And you get the idea. And here comes Jacob and he's set by Joseph before Pharaoh. I want you to meet my dad. Here's my father. He's the one that you've heard so much about. He's the one that I've longed to see for so long. Pharaoh, here he is. And uh, Jacob tells Pharaoh, all these years I've lived, 130 years, it's been full of trouble. It's short. 130 years. To an Egyptian, if you lived 120 years, that was like living to the right old age. And it doesn't get any better than living past 120. And here he's 130. And he says, I've had a short life. Compared to my daddy and compared to my granddaddy, yeah, Jacob did have a short life. 130 years thirty years—a short life? We're going, my soul, 130 years. That's Guinness Book of World Records right there. <laughs> short life, he says. It's but a vapor. Now think about the trouble that Jacob had had through that short to him 130 years all the trouble as the sparks fly upward, every account we read in the life of jacob is another sorrow that we can unfold in his life whether it's the deception that surrounds every account or whether it's the heartache or the death or the loss or the grief every time you turn around jacob is is being hammered again by this world and he says it's been full of evil this world is full of evil He says, but now I can depart in peace because my eyes have seen the hope. He saw Joseph. And so upon their reunion, Joseph didn't hesitate to bring Jacob to present him to his king. How too will one day our Joseph bring us and present us spotless as his bride, adorned in all beauty and splendor through his shed blood? That's what he's making us, sanctified and spotless, so there can be an entrance into heaven one day. I'm not worthy of this. And when I get before my Lord, I'm going to feel a lot like Joseph. My life was short and full of evil. And I don't know why you'd ever see anything good in me, only through Jesus Christ. Will I have any merit, clothed in His righteousness, to stand before my Father above, who will look down and see no sin on me anymore, but He'll see transformed by the renewing of my Savior and the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, bringing many sons to glory before His Father. One day that trumpet's going to sound and we're going to be changed in the moment in the twinkling of an eye. Glorified forever to be with Christ. And it's going to happen just like that. And as we look at the rest of chapter 47, verses 1-12, through we notice how Israel now has moved down to Egypt. And they're in the world, but notice they're not of the world because they didn't move in next door to Pharaoh's palace they had a special place prepared for them right outside Egypt in Goshen and this is a tremendous application for us because our Savior prayed for us did he not in John 17 not that we would be taken out of the world but that we would be kept from the evil that is in the world and that we'd be sanctified through his truth His word is truth. And he prayed that we would be in the world, but not of the world. And so as sojourners here, we find our time in Goshen where the green pastures are and our good shepherd leads us and we're fed by him every step of the way. But yet we're in this strait betwixt two because the world can't understand us and it won't be long, just a few hundred years. Not long, pastor? A few hundred years? What are you talking about? Yeah, It's not going to be long on God's timetable before there arose a Pharaoh that knew not Joseph. And the persecution's going to come against God's people. And we can expect that too, because if the world hated him, he told us to expect that they would hate us just for serving and living for him. But he's the good shepherd and he gives his life for the sheep. Amen? And so Egypt is there, but... They're in the world, but they're not of the world. They have all the provisions they need in Goshen. And while the world is selling themselves away, they're being nurtured and cared for by their Joseph, by his good hand, the viceroy to Pharaoh, second in command. They have everything they need, and they don't have to sell anything to get it. They just ask, and they receive. They seek, and they find. They knock, and it's opened unto them. What a powerful place that Joseph is in. And so Israel settled down in Egypt. They were careful to remain just outside the outskirts in Goshen, in the land of Ramses. King Tut coming to mind right now, isn't he? And so as they did, you know, they were able in the world to find pasturage, provision from the hand of Joseph. And we too are led by our good shepherd into good pasturage while we're in the world. We have to be careful, though. Not to be spoiled by the allurements, the materialistic temptations of the world. We need to be content, though we be hated by the world. Be content, though we're just short of the promised land that we aim for. Be content to find our blessed medium in Goshen. Trusting our Lord as we seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things should be added unto you. And we've considered the call tonight. There's a right time to go to Egypt. There's also a right way to be in relationship to Egypt. To be in the world, but not of the world. I want to close with this. You've been good to listen to me thus far. Just a few more moments if I could press your time for that. But we have to close with this because you must see this importance. The responsibility that we have as God's people to those who are doomed to destruction. As chapter 47 closes, I see the administration of Joseph and how he's handing bread to those that are seeking. Now immediately you might be thinking of an application that came naturally to me. He has the bread that will give them life. And through chapter 47, the word bread is even used there. And all of Egypt, all the world is looking to Joseph for the sustenance they need to physically live and exist another day. And Joseph's a wise man. He's working as wise as serpents and harmless as doves here. And in his wisdom, he had saved all the money. He had collected all the money. People had come to him and they had bought grain when they had money to buy grain with. He took all that money and saved it and and he treasured it up. And now people are out of money and the bread is gone that they bought before and they don't know what to do now. Well, the humanitarian thing to do is just fly a bunch of helicopters in there and just dump all the grain on them. and Well, Joseph was a little more careful than that. He was extremely careful in how he watched over what God had given him foresight to know was coming. See, let's not forget, without, without God's revelation to Pharaoh and Joseph's interpretation of that, the whole world might have died. But it was through Joseph... And His wisdom that He was able to store up in the seven years of plenty to meet the need for the seven years of want. So when the world runs out of its resources and you find out the world doesn't have everything to offer and it leaves you wanting in the end, we know where to look. We know where the bread is to be found. And friend, that's through Jesus Christ. And I found out when I had wasted all my substance on riotous living and I came to myself
1: And I realized that I was no
0: more worthy to be called God's son.
1: But I was worthy of
0: His judgment. I said, I'll go and return and just be a servant. Even if I can just be a servant, I'll eat better than I'm eating now. And God with open arms said, you're not a servant. You're a son. And He put a ring on me and He gave me a robe and He established my going and He blessed me and I don't deserve a bit of it. And so as... The souls that are there in Egypt are struggling. And God's people are being cared for by the hand of Joseph. They've run out of money now. And they come to Joseph. They say, what are we going to do? And Joseph says, well, you can sell your land now. And I'll take your land and I'll give you bread. And you can still stay on the land and you can work the land, but the land will belong to Pharaoh. And you see what Joseph did? He redeemed all that land for Pharaoh. He bought it all back for him. And he restored it. Now, I'm a small government kind of guy. Let that sink in. <laughs> I still haven't figured out all that Joseph's doing here. But he he basically amassed an empire for Pharaoh. He did this for the benefit of another. And he enriched Pharaoh because of his wisdom well, now he's taking advantage of the poor people and we need to distribute and you know, all that and everything's in common and we need to be socialistic in our approach, uh, this isn't a place to, to debate politics with you, okay? I'm not a socialist. I don't believe socialistic uh, promises will avail in the end. There is a utopia that the millennial reign will give us, but that will not be reached until Christ comes. And so I'm not going to debate politics or policies here with you tonight or Marxism versus communism versus capitalism and all of that. Uh, we just need to set our eyes on the Lamb and look at what Joseph did here and remember that the whole world would have been in a mess if he hadn't have done anything at all. And now he's here and they have land to sell, so they sell their land and they become slaves to Pharaoh. Hey, I do learn some economic lessons from that. The borrower is servant to the lender. And the bigger your government gets, the more control and power they have over you. And there will come a day where uh, Egypt will get very jealous of God's people, of Israel, and they will persecute them to no end. In fact, they'll feel so threatened by their prosperity that they will hammer upon them harder wages and harder working until the time comes when they cry to God for deliverance. And I don't know if maybe our riches in America have made us forget the toils of those that that pioneered here in America and worked and sweated and they cried to God. Have we cried to God? I don't think we have because we haven't felt the hurt yet. We have not felt our freedoms being eroded hard enough yet for us to cry to God for deliverance like Israel's going to do. Well, I don't want to digress too much here. We have a responsibility to the doomed. As Joseph is there, he is a representative of Israel. He is serving in Egypt and he is distributing bread to them. As we think about a responsibility we have, we are in the world but not of the world. But are we just sojourning here and passing the time without giving out the bread of life? My challenge to you is that we don't do that. That we redeem the time for the days are evil and we constantly look about us For those that would be at the end of their resources looking for hope and be able to provide them a way to find Jesus Christ who is the bread of life that can nourish and feed their most important part of their being, their very soul. And so he provides the bread of life to the Egyptians. Where was this bread sourced? In the hands of Joseph. He had it to distribute and give. There was only one source in this day from which to find the sustenance for life, and that was through uh, Joseph. And Jesus said of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. There's only one way to find the true bread of life today. There's only one source for eternal life. What does this bread cost? Well, the Egyptians had to sell everything they had just to get a little morsel of bread from Joseph. I'm here to tell you today that the bread of life is free for all who will take by faith. The cost? Oh, it came at a great cost. It cost the Father, His only begotten Son, to make that bread of life free for all who would come to Him by faith. And Him that cometh to me, Jesus said, I will in no wise cast out. So as we're here, we have a responsibility to the doomed to provide them the means to find the bread of life. We aren't the bread of life but we can give them the bread of life when we share the gospel with them and open up the kingdom of heaven to them and meet their eternal need for their soul. We remember, though, as chapter 47 closes, we are just pilgrims on a journey. And as Jacob made Joseph promise, don't bury me in Egypt. We say, this world's not my home. I'm just passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. And one day I'm going across that shore and I'm going to be with my Savior And so this world, this isn't where I'm going to be buried. I'm not going to have my treasures here. I'm not going to lay up things here. I don't need the the tombs of the pharaohs. I don't need the honeypots that are there. I don't need all the gold. I don't need all the earthly silver that's going to get burned up in the end with a fervent heat. I'm looking to lay up treasure in heaven where thieves can't steal it, where moth and rust can't corrupt it. You see the principle here as chapter 47 closes. Jacob, though he... Could have been buried with all the splendor of Egypt. He never forgot the promise of God. He knew he'd never see it again in his days. But one day, his faith as he was departing this life was my sons and their sons and their sons' sons are coming out of this land one day and we're going back because God promised it. And when you go, take my bones with you. Take my bones with you. And Joseph too is going to have him carry his bones out of Egypt one day. Why? Because of the covenant promises of God, there's a land that's fairer than day. And by faith we can see it afar. That's what the Psalm says, right? Is that our hope? Is our hope built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness? And so these very verses they reveal where his heart truly remained in the homeland homeland that he was called to leave to go to the world to minister to them so that God could reveal His glory in and through Jacob, making him a mighty nation and the whole world's going to come and see what God did through Israel in all the splendor and all the glory. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. That's why Jacob was called by God to go down into Egypt. His faith moved him to have Joseph promise he would not be buried in the tombs of Egypt, but that he'd be buried in the land of his faith We too, one day, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. We're going to leave this earthly tabernacle in the dust and it's going to return unto the ash. And we're going to go by faith to forever be with our Savior, absent from the body, present with the Lord until the glorification happens. As we say when we do our baptismal services, buried in the likeness of His death, raised to walk in newness of life. And so I hope that This has helped you understand just from these verses and these two chapters in the Bible. There's a right time. There's a right way to go down to Egypt. As we're in the world, there's a right relationship we have with the world to be in the world, but not of the world. Don't let it corrupt you. But remember your responsibility to the doomed while you're here to share the bread of life. And the whole time looking for that blessed hope and the promise that one day we're coming out. And this isn't all there is. And that there's a life beyond. A life of beauty and hope and splendor.